Welcome to Healing Place Church, where our mission is to be a healing place for a hurting world. We hope to enrich your life through reaching, serving, giving, and building. As you listen to this teaching, be inspired to fulfill your God-given destiny through the power of His Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to the very last book of the Bible. It's called The Revelation. We're in a series called You've Got Mail. And uh, we're going to talk out of the book of Revelation for the next seven weeks, seven weeks of study in the book of Revelation. And I know that this book can be intimidating for some. Some people, they, they just avoid it altogether. It can be hard to understand. How many know there's some, some pictures and some, some images? There's a, a little imagery in the book of Revelation that sometimes it can be a little difficult to connect the dots Um, But I'm thankful for the book of Revelation. In fact, I'm thankful for all 66 books that make up the Bible. You know, Genesis is the very beginning. The name Genesis means beginning. And God tells us how this whole thing got started years ago with Adam and Eve. And, you know, how many know we didn't get the best start? But it's not always how you start, but it's how you finish. You know, so from Genesis all the way up into to Jude, you know, we're, we're told how we got started and then how to live in the here and now, but Revelation gives us the finish line. And I'm just so thankful that God doesn't keep us in the dark when it comes to how all of this ends. He wants us to be in the know. Can I have a good amen? And so we don't avoid the book of Revelation. I've been praying, Lord, give me understanding. I want to rightly divide the scriptures. I don't want to add confusion. I don't want people to live in fear. You know, when it comes to what's happening in the earth today, I think that for those of us who follow Jesus, we know the Lord, we love him, God makes it very clear as to how this whole thing pans out. And so we don't have to be afraid You know, we don't have to live in worry or anxiety. We're going to talk out of the book of Revelation for the next seven weeks. And uh, the Greek word for Revelation is the word apocalypse. Apocalypse. Some of you are like, (laughs) Apocalypse simply refers to an unveiling uh, or a disclosure of something not known. I mean, to reveal. Revelation means to reveal. And I love that about our God because he doesn't want us to live in ambiguity. He doesn't want us to to wrestle with uncertainty. He wants to reveal. Apocalypse is revealing that which is unknown. God is fully disclosing something to us. Now, let me give you a little background about the book of Revelation and then where we're going to spend most of our time over the next seven weeks. Uh, The book of Revelation was written by the apostle John. How many of you knew that? The Apostle John, God revealed some things to the Apostle John when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Now, what's interesting, church history tells us that the Romans hated John, and they tried to kill him. Guess how they tried to kill the Apostle John? They tried to boil him in oil. Who? Tried to boil him in oil. Guess what? He wouldn't die. I mean, I love the, the spirit of darkness always tries to extinguish light. But the apostle John wouldn't die. They pulled him out of the vat of oil. He's still alive. So they banished him to some barren rock called Patmos. And while John was on the island of Patmos, God began to reveal to him the mysteries of the end times. Now, we're going to spend the majority of this series 
in two chapters. We're going to spend the majority in chapters two and three and talk about letters that Jesus wrote to the church. Now, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ecclesia. The, the church is ecclesia, and it literally means the called out ones. How many of you know God will call you out? Oh, yes, he will. And I think God has something specific to say to us in this series. You know, there are three ways to interpret these letters, okay? And we're actually going to study seven letters to seven different churches. These were real churches that that had been planted, and they were growing, and they were doing life and reaching people. We're going to talk over the next seven weeks about seven letters to these churches. They were different in nature. They had strengths. They had weaknesses. They had different needs. And, And let me stop right here to say this. I want to set this up front. And I know the nature of of today's message is going to be maybe a little bit different than what we're used to. It may be a little more informational or educational, but I want to say this quickly because these are different churches that we're going to look at over the next month and a half. And God just reminded me of this. It takes all different kinds of churches to reach all different kinds of people. I want to say that again because sometimes we get very narrow in our perspective of the churches that God uses. And we think, well, if they're not like us, if they don't do it like us, if they don't sing like we sing, I want you to know there are some churches that are very different in their expression than Healing Place. And we've got to make room in our thinking to embrace the different expressions of who Jesus is because it takes all different kinds of churches to reach all different kinds of people. There are some churches that sing in their worship service from a hardback book called a hymnal. How many of you remember those days? Yes, indeed. Man, my dad, we would, man, we would stand and we would sing. And my dad was the, actually, he was the worship leader at our small little country church in Fredericktown, Missouri. And we would stand and sing the first, the second, and the last stanza. I don't know why we would never sing verse number three. I felt, I felt sorry for the guy who wrote the hymn. Why'd he even write a verse if we don't sing it? But, you know, we'd sing, you know, I sing out of this book called the hymn. There's some churches that sing out of the hymnal, and then there are other churches that sing off of words that are posted on a screen. And, and God bless both of it. One's not better than the other. Come on, talk to me. I, I thank God for both church. There are some churches that when they sing, they really get into it. And they're very charismatic and very expressive. And, you know, there's rowdy. How many of you know rowdy people? Yeah. Come on. Some of the rowdy folk just get up in church and they just sing it and they shout it and they're crying and they're wiping their tears. They're dancing. And then there's some churches that are very stoic and very soft and very solemn. It takes all different kinds. You know, some that, uh, you know, when they serve communion, they actually literally have bread. And then there are others that have these communion packets. And if we're not careful, what we can do is say, well, I don't like that way that they say, and this is too loud and too much this and not enough that. And what about this? And, you know, the pastor doesn't preach exegetically. He preaches topically and all of these things. And if we're not careful, we can begin to make ourselves better than others and adopt a very religious spirit. It takes all different kinds of churches to reach all different kinds of... There's a church, there's a, there's, there's a thing called Cowboy Church. How many's heard of that? Come on, man, just rodeo, wranglers. Man, bless God. And I think Jesus says this, whether you sing from a hymnal or words on the screen, whether you wear wranglers or whether you're singing with skinny jeans, come on, somebody. As long as it glorifies me, I think Jesus says, I'm for it. 
because there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. That's what I love about Baton Rouge. There's so many great churches, and I don't expect another church to do it just like us. So glad. These are seven different churches, and these are letters written to these churches. Now, there are three ways that we can interpret the book of Revelation, okay? I want you to see this. We can interpret it literally, okay? These are are specific letters written to real churches in that day addressing specific needs. There's a literal interpretation to these letters. There's also a prophetic interpretation. Uh, Some scholars believe that these seven letters represent seven dispensations, seven stages of the church, starting from the time Revelation was written until the end of the age when Jesus returns. So there's a, in a sense, there's a prophetic context to what we're going to read as well. But there's also an eternal context that what Jesus said to these seven churches, not only was it for them in that day, but it has something to say to us in our day too. Can I have a good amen? And so John gets this revelation on the Isle of Patmos about 95 AD, and he begins to record. There are many times you'll read in Revelations where he says, then I heard a voice from the throne saying, he turned to me and he said, write these things down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. I'm so glad that the gospels, uh, that this book records the revelation of John and what he's saying to the church. Now we've titled this, this series, You've Got Mail." You've got mail. Question, how many of you, you have an email account? How many of you check your emails consistently? Yeah. How many need to check it a little more often? Anybody got over 100 emails in their account right now? Oh, my, my, my. How many of you have over 1,000? Oh, yes. I checked Rachel's emails last night. She's got 23,000 emails in her account. Now, granted, there are different email addresses all coalescing into She wanted me to give some context. How many of Rachel's got to have her bargains? She, if there's somebody having a sale, we've got to be notified of it. So don't miss the sale. Hey, when you have an email account, sometimes emails get marked as junk mail, Right? If you don't have their contact information stored, then what's sent, it could be flagged as junk mail. Let me encourage you, make sure you have Jesus stored in your contacts so when he's trying to send you some information, it doesn't come across as junk mail. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Glory. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read a letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is a letter to Ephesus, and I've titled this message, First Love. First Love. Revelation chapter 2, starting with verse 1. The Bible says this, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, let me just pause right here and give you a little context about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a major port city in the Roman Empire. Okay, and it was often referred to as the gateway to Asia. All right, so it was a port city with a lot of commerce, a lot of industry. It had three major markets. Uh, and one of those markets was slave trade. And so there was a lot of labor, a lot of work, some craziness happening in the city. Um, they, it was the host to a lot of pagan temples, a lot of idolatry, a lot of crazy worship. 
Um, it also, uh, it, it was, they had the, uh, an arena, a stadium that seated 30,000 people, and they would host these gladiator games. And many of you know the persecution of the first century church, and sometimes Christians were brought out in these gladiator games. So you had a lot of interesting dynamics in the city of Ephesus. Well, the Apostle Paul, I think in around 52 A.D., planted a church in Ephesus with a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Does, does that ring a bell to anybody? So with the help of this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, Paul planted a church in this major gateway metropolitan community, and the church began to grow. And in fact, it was the largest church in the first century. A lot of cool things were happening from the church. Interesting to note that when the apostle Paul died, uh, the Apostle John, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, moved to Ephesus to provide leadership for this church. Isn't that interesting? I just love church history. Check this out. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Now, let me stop right here. We, we got stars, we got lampstands. Well, what does this mean? He says, I'm, I'm writing this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is a message from the one who holds the seven stars. Now, in this verse, stars actually represents the pastors. These are seven letters to seven churches. He says, I hold the pastors of these seven churches in my right hand. And I walk among the lampstands. Lampstands actually represents the church itself. So notice what he's saying here. I hold the stars. I've got the pastors of these churches right here. And I'm walking among the lampstands. All the churches of that day, Jesus said, I'm walking among them. And interesting how he says seven. What's seven the number of? Completion. Our, our perfection. You notice God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And so seven is the number of perfection, the number of completion. He says, I have complete strength. Now watch this. Where does he hold the seven stars? In his right hand. The right hand of God represents strength. It represents authority. Right out the gate, I want you to see this. If you're taking notes, number one, you need to know Jesus holds the church. Bible says he holds the seven stars in his right hand. This is a, a, a position of strength and authority. I have these pastors in the, in the very palm of my hand, and I'm walking among the lampstands. I'm walking among the churches. I think this is fantastic because when you consider the church, the church was literally started by Jesus 2,000 years ago. Now think about it. Over the last 2,000 years, the church has endured dictators, dynasties, empires. The church has endured persecution. The church has endured all different fads and fashions and famines, all the technology advances. Think about the things that have come and gone in 2,000 years. But the church is held solid and steady in the right hand of God. Jesus holds the church. Consider Jesus being arrested 2,000 years ago. He was beaten. He, he was crucified on a cross. They took his body down, and just to make sure he didn't get away, they put him in a tomb and rolled a big rock in front of it. Can I tell you, there's not a rock on earth that can hold God back. 
They couldn't keep Jesus in the tomb. And so guess what? 2,000 years later, the church of Jesus continues to move forward in that same spirit. Jesus, the Bible says in Romans 8, the same spirit that lifted Jesus out of that tomb, it now dwells in us. I think this is good news for us as a church today. What is God saying to you and me? My hand is on the church. In fact, he says, I hold the seven stars by the strength of my right hand. How many know that's power? You know, the other day, Trevor, I was putting him down for the night. And, uh, you know, he plays, he's, he's 10 years old, and he's in this football league now, so he, he's got the shoulder pads and the helmet, and, you know, he's kind of got this macho thing going on, and, you know, sometimes I walk in the room, and he'd, like, come at me, like he'd try to tackle me or something, and, you know, so he's real confident. He's, he's super, super confident. We're working on the humility, but he's, he's very confident. And so as a dad, fellas, sometimes, you know, you got to bring your kids down a notch or two, right? Just remind him, hey, I still got game. I can still take you. So I'm putting him down for the night, and we're saying our prayers and stuff. And I say, hey, son, I just want you to know, see, see, see this arm right here? See this? Check, check this out. All, all, from, just from here to here. I want you to look at that. I got more power in this arm than you have in your entire body. <laughs> I mean, no, that's like, you say that to a 10-year-old, th- those are fighting words right there. <laughs> so there was no longer, let's say our prayers and let's get all sleepy night-night. It is full on. So it's like a cage match. I mean, we're thrashing on the bed, right? Just like, hey, what's going on in there? Oh, nothing. Just going to night-night. I wanted him to know, boy, I can still take you. Now, he's 10 years old, and I can take him with one arm now. How many knows in a few years that ain't going to happen? God says, you see this right hand? This is a hand of authority. This is a hand of power. And he's telling the church at Ephesus, my hand holds you. I want you to know here this morning, maybe you've come in the the, the sanctuary and you've had all kinds of stuff come against you. I don't know what the challenge or obstacle or struggle may be, but God says, I hold you by the strength of my right hand. And when God places his hand on you, there's not a devil in hell. There's not a spirit in darkness. There's no oppression. There's no bondage that can stand against the very hand of God. The hand of Jesus holds the church. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 16, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can somebody say amen? Amen. The church is the best idea that God ever had. And if you think you don't need the church, then you must be smarter than God. God says, I'm building this thing upon this rock. I am building my church. Amazing to me how you go through time and you think there are certain things that will last forever, but they don't. Think about paper maps. The Rand McNally Atlas. I know some of you still got them. Guess what? There's a thing called Google Maps now. There's an app on your iPhone. When was the last time you used a map? When was the last time you used a phone book? When was the last time you used a landline? I mean, think about it. Last time you got film developed. Where did it go? It's gone. Last time you rented a movie from a movie rental store. Don't use it anymore. Those things come and go. When was the last time you, some of you don't even know anybody else's phone number because you already got them stored in your, you don't even know your spouse's phone number. You barely know yours. The things that we think will last forever and over time they go. But the church, 
What Jesus started 2,000 years ago. Now listen, now in a prophetic sense, he says this. Uh, Paul said, uh, uh, he told Timothy, in the last days, perilous times will come. He says the love of many will wax cold. There'll be people that'll be unthankful, ungrateful, unholy, disobedient. But guess what? In spite of all of the craziness around us, the hand of God still holds his church. I want you to know your life is held in the hand of a sovereign God. And if he has you here, then there's nothing that the devil can do to loosen his grip from you. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's got you. Mm, Somebody needed to hear that today. Somebody needed to be reminded. Now, maybe circumstances are bigger than you, but they're not bigger than God. He's got you. God's got you. He's reminding the church at Ephesus. And there's a reason why. Because they had begun to lose their grip on the Lord. But the Lord is reminding them, I've got you. I'm holding the seven stars in my right hand. I'm walking among the lampstands. He's saying, I hold you. I'm with you. I'm walking among you. Now look at what it says, verse 2. He says, I know all the things that you do. I've seen your hard work, your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but they're not. And you've discovered that they are liars. How many of you know the truth of God is so powerful, it can penetrate the layers and layers of lies that the enemy brings? He says, you've tested those things and you've discovered they're not true. Verse 3, you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. An amazing resume. How many thinks the church of Ephesus is doing some things right? I mean, look at it again. They're working hard. They're, they're patiently enduring. They don't tolerate evil. They examine certain claims. They've suffered patiently, and they just won't quit. And I thought, Lord, if, if, if you look down upon Healing Place, what would you say about Healing Place Church? What would the resume of HPC be? In fact, not just here at this campus, but across our 11 campuses, I asked some of our campus pastors, hey, tell me, what have you done over the last two weeks? You know, in St. Francisville, we did a car prep for widows, for single moms, and for military wives. 36 cars were serviced. Families being added value to. At our North Baton Rouge campus, listen to this, at Memorial Stadium and at Pennington Park, we gave out free Powerade to kids and, and families that are participating in football. uh, In Mozambique, we gave over 30 mattresses to widows along with food baskets for each one. In El Paso, we gave blankets to children who live in Juarez, Mexico, as they prepare for winter. In Denham Springs, we had over 100 people meet in small groups. And here, the building isn't even complete yet. I mean, we don't even have a facility, but families are being connected to God and to each other. Do you know right here at our Highland campus, we, we do cancer outreach in hospitals across Baton Rouge, and every single, and we go five days a week, our cancer team goes out to minister to those who are getting treatment. And uh, over a month, or the course of a month, we minister to over 2,000 people through cancer ministry alone. Isn't that amazing? Do you know, come on, put your hands together. That's awesome. Yay, God, look at what God is doing among the church. I talked to a man right after, this, uh, right after the 9 o'clock service, and he stopped me. An older gentleman had tears in his eyes, stopped me right over here. He said, I just had to meet you. I wanted to tell you this was my very first time to come to the church. He said, I lost my wife on Monday. He said, we met when we were 18 years old. She passed away on Monday, and your team, a Healing Place team, 
came and ministered to her every single time she had treatment. Your team was there passing out snacks, passing out water, and encouraging us. I had to come visit the church that was so kind to my wife. Isn't that amazing? He said, a buddy of mine, a fishing buddy, lost his wife a year ago, and he's here at the church because of the same reason. I said, Lord, man, thank you, God. The scripture says, I see all the works that you're doing. I see all the amazing things that are happening among you. But listen to what it says in verse 4. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. <laughs> I know you're doing a lot of great things. You've accomplished a lot. Man, this is impressive, all that you're a part of. But there's something I have against you. You don't love me or each other as you once did. The second thing I want you to notice is this. And here's what he's telling the church of Ephesus. And here's what we've got to pay attention to. Number two, in all our doing, it's easy to drift. In all of our doing, it's easy to drift. They had pursued a lot of things, doing a lot of great work. Interesting to me how he encourages them. I know you're doing some amazing things, but here's something you better pay attention to. I love how God brings correction. He doesn't just drop the hammer on people, but he lets them know, hey, you're doing a lot of things right, but here's something you better pay attention to or it could mess you up. He says, you don't love me or each other as you once did. How many of you know that activity is not the same as affection? That we can be busy doing a lot of things and we can still, in our busyness, begin to drift from our original purpose. He says, you don't love me like you used to. You're doing a lot of things for me. But the passion, the motivation, the love for me is not what it once was. In fact, he said, you don't love me or each other as you once did. You know what that tells me? that our relationships to others are completely influenced by our love for the Lord. That if you're out of fellowship or out of relationship with somebody else, it may not necessarily be a horizontal thing. You may need to look vertically first. Because when you're loving God with the fullness of your heart, it influences how you treat other people. He's saying, you've got a great resume and you're doing a lot. I'm not concerned about your doing, but I am a little concerned about your loving. Reminds me of a story of our, uh, that I heard years ago of a college student. A young lady was enrolled in a calculus class, and she was struggling. How many of you, if you were in calculus, you'd be struggling a little bit too? And so her grades weren't really good. She was kind of, you know, D's, and, and she was thinking about dropping the class, but she really needed the class for her major. And so she didn't like the content. It was just one of those things she was trying to get through and struggling to understand the, the, the concepts of calculus. And, and so rather than drop the class, she decided to get some tutoring, some outside help. And so there was a graduate assistant that was helping to facilitate the class. And so she talked to him afterwards and said, would you be willing to tutor me three days a week? And so they set up Monday, Wednesday, Friday uh, uh, opportunities in the afternoon for, for them to tutor. And so as she's spending time with him, she really starts enjoying him. In fact, she finds herself looking forward to tutoring every afternoon. She says, can we up it from three, weeks to, or three days a week to five days a week? 
she found herself falling in love with this guy. And so, man, she's just looking forward to getting tutored in calculus. Next thing you know, her grades start to pick up. She starts to understand. By the end of the semester, she had the top grade in class. And the tutor looked at her and said, listen, I want to tell you a little secret. I know we've been together for several months now. I want to tell you a little secret. That book that you're studying from, even though it has the professor's name on it, I wrote that book. I did all the research, all the work, all of the content I'm the author of. Isn't it interesting to know how her performance changed when she fell in love with the author of the book? Interesting to know that God's written a book. There's a lot of things in here that may be difficult to understand and even harder to live. But if you fall in love with the author of the book, it's easier to uh, uh, master the objectives within the book. You see, her problem was not intelligence. Her problem was not ability. Her problem wasn't even capacity or discipline. Her problem was love. And I wonder if God says, listen, my church is busy doing a lot of things for me. Oh, but they're losing their love. Don't forget the passion inside of you. God doesn't want us busy doing a bunch of things and then losing out on what matters most, our love for him. It reminds me of the the story of Mary and Martha in the Gospel of Luke. You remember that? These two sisters and Jesus was coming over to their house for lunch one afternoon. And So how many of Jesus were coming to your house? You'd be getting busy cleaning, got to put that stuff away, man, put that in the closet, shut that, lock that door. He's not going into that room. You know, you got to get everything just right. And here Martha is, she's in the kitchen and she's just hustling, trying to get everything just right because Jesus is coming over. And you know, so Martha's busy in the kitchen, but here when Jesus comes in, Mary is just seated at his feet and she's just listening. And Martha looks up from the kitchen. It's like, Jesus, don't you care? Tell my sister to get off of her blessed assurance and get in this kitchen and help me. Come on, how many be a little fired up too? I mean, there's something about that whole deal. It just doesn't, I mean, come on, Mary, you can't just be saved and sitting on it. You got to get up and do something. And what did Jesus tell Martha? What did he say? He said, but the Lord said there, look, look, look at Luke 10. He says, my dear Martha, you're worried. You're upset over all these details. There's only one thing. Come on, somebody say one thing. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. And Mary has discovered it. And it will not be taken away from her. What was Jesus saying? He's saying this. Don't be caught up in the chaos of the kitchen. Or you'll miss the blessings that are at his feet. And my warning to us, and I feel like heaven would want us to know, listen, we can do a lot of things and fill our calendars and our schedules from A to Z. And all those things are good, but don't forget the blessings that are at the very feet of Jesus. Sometimes busyness will create barrenness. And my prayer for us as a church is, especially a church this size, 11 campuses, and God is growing our influence, and we're taking ground, and we're serving people, and all those things are good and well. But Jesus told the church at Ephesus, you're doing great, but there's one thing I have against you. You've lost your first love. You've lost that passion, that motivation inside of you. You know what I tell my staff? I tell my staff this, don't turn God into a job. Those who work here at Healing Place, and man, we've got an amazing staff. 
We do. And they work incredibly hard. And they're, they're, they're humble people. They love, they love this house. They serve without question. But my concern is this. Sometimes we can turn God into a job. Please, don't turn your relationship with God into a job. Because the minute you do that, the life will be stolen right out of it. Then it will no longer be passion. It will be obligation. And you won't do things because you want to or love to. You'll do things because you have to. How many of you know there's a difference? There's a difference between I have to versus I get to. Remember when you first got saved. Remember when you first said yes to Jesus. Remember how he delivered you from all of that bondage, all of that darkness, all of that craziness. Remember how alive you felt on the inside. And you just wanted somebody to know what Jesus had done in you. I wonder when is the last time that you've gone back to tell the story of what God's done in your life? When's the last time you shared your faith with somebody and stoked that fire within you, that love for him, that burning passion inside of you for heaven? God forbid we just go through the mechanics or we go through the emotions or we do the routine and we've lost the passion. Paul said, whatever you do, do it with all of your heart. Whatever you do, do it with all of whatever you put your hand to, put your heart in it as well. Is this making sense today? He says, I've got one thing against you. You no longer love me or each other as you once did. Now, look at what he says. I'm going to ask the, the band to come up. Verse 5. He says, look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, he says, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Here's the third thing, and I want you to see this. What is it that God's asking of us to do? If we've drifted in all of our doing, if we've gotten away from the motivation or the passion in which we started, he says this, return to first love things again. Return. He's saying, turn back to me. Do the things that you did at first. Come back to the original motivation that all of this thing got started. And this is a a word to those of us who've been in church for a while. It's, It's a word to me. I have to check my own soul, check my own spirit. What's my motivation for what I'm doing? Have I turned God into a job? Am I so busy being a soldier that I forget what it means to be a son? Are you with me? Some of you are in the army of the Lord and you're just cranking it out and you're a a good soldier. But God's saying, before I enlisted you as a soldier, I embraced you as a son. When when God looked down upon Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, remember when Jesus was baptized by John? The Bible says that a dove descended upon Jesus and there was this loud, booming voice. God said, this is my beloved son. This is my son, the son that I love. I am well pleased. What was God saying? This is my son. That's identification. The son that I love, that's affirmation. I am well pleased. That's validation. God gave him identification. He gave him affirmation and validation. Watch this. Before Jesus had ever done a single thing. Jesus had never preached a sermon. He never opened any blinded eyes. He 
never done a single miracle. Of all the things that we would read about him in the future, he hadn't performed a single thing yet. You know what that tells me? God bestowed upon Jesus the blessings of sonship. I mean, Gabe, listen, I love you. I'm for you. I'm pleased with you. And you haven't done a single thing yet. Now, I know this flies in the face of religion because religion says you have to do a bunch of things to get the approval and the love of God. Tell you what, that's not the gospel. Hear me. Some of you are going to have to reconstruct the way that you think, and it's a little foreign. And listen, we serve God and we do things for God not to get his approval. We don't do it from that place. We do it from a place of already having his approval. I I serve you because I love you. You first love me. It's not to convince God to approve of you. Some of you are in bondage. Listen to this. Your bondage is not drugs. It's not alcohol. It's not pornography. You're in bondage to religion. There's a religious spirit that is holding you hostage. And you constantly live under guilt and condemnation because you can never do enough. I'm telling you, a religious spirit will never allow you to receive the things of God. And you know what? And I didn't share any of this in the first service. I'm telling you, this is for somebody today. I didn't talk about this, this portion of it at all. But I feel God drawing this out of me because somebody here today, you've lived under a religious spirit and it's been stealing the life out of you. And for you, this whole God thing is not based on love. It's based on legalism. It's based on everything that you're trying to do to win his approval. And, and God says, wait a second. I did all the work. I sent Jesus. He's the one that suffered. He bled. He died on the cross. If you'll just receive what I've done, it's not what you do. It's what I've already done. And here, the, the church at Ephesus, God had to remind them, wait a second. You're losing your grip. I'm holding you but be careful in all of your doing you're beginning to drift you're drifting you say Mike what to do what to do you go back and you do the things you used to how do you drift in a marriage oh man if you first marriage you start your own fire fire man you're just loving each other woo chasing each other all over the house woo glory and it's great then something happens have children oh well now you're not chasing each other all over the house you're chasing kids everywhere and and you've seen this and I've seen it too you've seen couples that have been married for 20 years and then all of a sudden the kids are gone and they look across the table and they think who are you don't even know you what'd you do and all you're doing you drifted you're thinking, how can a couple that's been married for 20 plus years call it quits? Because they've lost their first love. What do you got to do to get it back? Go on a date. Hire a babysitter. Use that gift card that's been in your purse for two months. Go out to dinner. Talk about the things that, that remind yourself of why you love each other and how this whole thing got started. Do the first works to get back to your first love. Can I have a good amen? It it happens in a marriage. It happens in friendship. It happens in our job. We turn job into just work and we forget our calling. Listen, a job is what you're paid for, but a calling is what you're made for. Don't you dare forget your calling. I know you've got a source of employment, but God has a call on your life. It's the call of God that will keep you motivated in that job. Get back to 
to your first love. Simplify. Reprioritize. Organize the content of your soul. God, I don't want to do this thing without you. Lord, I thank you. I don't have to do it without you. I love you. I love you, Jesus. I love you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Healing Place Church, go to healingplacechurch.org or give us a call at 225-753-2273.